All right. Welcome to the first official episode of the Inside the Castle podcast. The Inside the Castle podcast goes behind the castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts for today, Lauren Mike. And I'm Aaron Snyder. Today's guest is the Director of Civil Works, Mr. Al Lee. Uh, thank you for joining us, Mr. Lee. Hey, good morning, everyone, and really appreciate this opportunity uh, to talk with you today. Great. Thank you, sir. Mr. Lee started as the Director of Civil Works at the beginning of this year, and today we have a great opportunity to talk with him about his reflections so far in this leadership role, as well as the challenges the agency is currently facing and how he is working to address them. Mr. Lee, first we want to talk a little bit about your background. Um, Could you give us a little overview of your career, how you ended up as the Director of Civil Works, and and maybe throw in a little bit something about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'll start off with a personal story, kind of where I grew up, because it it really helped kind of shape and inform uh, me and kind of my career and and the direction I went. Grew up in in rural America, uh, grew up in a farming community, and, you know, started working when I was probably 18 years old, uh, part-time, and, and that's kind of the culture that I, I think helped shape me because when, when you work on a farm, uh, there's a lot of the intrinsic things that you pick up along the way and uh, that you just don't see in other, other places that you work. Uh, first of all, you have to be in, innovative. You have, you have to adapt to what you have. You can't make a trip to town every, you know, hour when something breaks. You have to fix it. Uh, you, you have to find materials that you have and use those materials to uh, develop or repair or build or whatever you're doing uh, because you, you just don't have the time to go make trips all the time to do that. Not, not to say that you don't make trips, but uh, but you really, it makes you, I think it helps develop a mindset that you think differently about things. Uh, I believe that, it, you know, I did a lot of different things. I worked in tobacco. I worked in timber. Uh, I did agricultural farming. I worked with hogs, cows, livestock. Uh, so a lot of different things that I worked with in, in all those different areas of farming, you learn a little different uh, nuance of what it takes to be successful, and and so one one of the things that uh, it taught me was that uh, I became a morning person pretty early in my life. So waking up at uh, four or five o'clock in the morning was pretty normal, uh, especially in the summers when when I was wasn't in school. Uh, that was kind of the peak agricultural season. So you know I've been a morning person since I was pretty young. So. I still am. Uh, that habit has not changed, but I think that it also allows you to be fresh. You know, your mind's fresh in the morning. Uh, you, you get to think about things that you want to do um, and, and really think through things when, when, when it's quiet, when all the other activities are not going on, when your cell phone's not ringing, when your email's not going off. And so, uh, so that's kind of a, a sort of a personal story of my background and how I grew up. Great, thank you, sir. Yeah, that was that was great. I I had no idea that you grew up on a on a farm, and uh, I can definitely see how that experience has really um really led to your career going forward and and your leadership roles that you now serve. Um, 
you know, wanted to get a little bit about your background. I know you served in a, in a lot of uh, leadership roles throughout the Corps. Could you just briefly talk about uh, some of the leadership roles that you've served uh, prior to uh, becoming the Director of Civil Works? Sure, Lauren. You know, the, the, I started off, uh, I was in the Army for 26 years, and uh, I was an engineer officer in the Army. And about at the uh, halfway point in my career, you know, I started talking to some mentors that I had. Um, uh, General Anderson was one of my early mentors. He was uh, with me in the Green Suit Army, and then he also was also in the Corps of Engineers as a senior leader. And General Anderson and I started this engagement about, you know, kind of what's next. Do, do you stay, do you track in the military as a purely tactical track? Or do you want to expand your horizons and, and start thinking differently about what you want to do in the future? And so that, that was my opportunity to go to graduate school. So the Corps of Engineers paid for my grad school full-time. And uh, so I went to grad school for uh, a year and a half. And then from that, you have a utilization tour. And that was my first experience with the Corps. So I was assigned to the Alaska district, worked in a, in a project in a resident office. I was a deputy resident engineer, did that for a couple years. Now I had a great opportunity to work with Arctic uh, in the Coal Regions Research Lab, completely different than uh, typical core uh, construction of either MILCON or international interagency support or environmental work that we were doing in the district. And this was more focused on ops research. So what, what, what do you do in cold weather climates? How, how do you adapt that and help support the military? Uh, we did engagements with Korea uh, in how they did cold, cold water uh, crossings in the middle of, of the winter. Uh, a lot of uh, research on climate assessments, climate change. Uh, they have a permafrost tunnel up in Alaska that shows what, what really uh, it looked like uh, millions of years ago and how the evolution is, is occurring now, uh, and we're all seeing it throughout the world. So a lot of interesting introspect uh, that I picked up in those first two assignments. And then I shifted gears and uh, went, I was the uh, Charleston District Commander in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, following that, I went back to military for a, for a short period and then went out to the front range in the Rocky Mountain area in, uh, in, in the Colorado Springs area, was in a resident area, area office there uh, for a couple years, and then, uh, then went out uh, from that and uh, went to a corporate fellowship with Caterpillar, and then came back to the Corps, and that's when I went to New Orleans, following Katrina. I was the commander in New Orleans uh, during the reconstruction after Hurricane Katrina, and that was just a great opportunity to uh, learn and engage. And then following that, I uh, went up to the headquarters. I was executive director for Civil Works, and then I retired from active duty. Uh, I competed for a senior executive service position in the MBD. Uh, that was in 2011, and I became the MBD regional business director. I also deployed downrange uh, with U.S. forces Afghanistan, uh, did a six-month tour uh, as a SES, uh, working for U.S. forces Afghanistan, uh, and then also, and then I came back to MBD, transitioned to SAD as a programs director, 
for five and a half years. Uh, we had some key mega projects and a lot of port modernization in the region there. And then uh, most recently transitioned up uh, last year uh, to the transatlantic division before uh, the civil works director uh, opportunity came open. So that's kind of a brief history of, of where I've been and the leadership engagements that I've been involved in with, with the Corps. Great, thank you. So you've obviously had a lot of different opportunities throughout the throughout the court and a lot of different experiences. Um, how do you think diversifying your career um, and having those those variety of experiences has made you a better leader? Well, I think one of the things is it makes you uh, you have to learn the organization uh, that you're at. So you. You really have become a, a really good listener uh, because every one of the organizations I served at was different. Uh, it had different cultures, it had uh, different capabilities, and, it, and they had different missions that, that they were accomplishing. Some of them were similar, but some of them were vastly different. And uh, so, really, that I think the depth and breadth of the experience that I've had in the Corps. It's helped shape me in understanding the capabilities that the Corps of Engineers can bring to a table and, and really about the integration across our functional areas to make that a reality. And that, I think that's one of our biggest challenges is that how do we effectively integrate across our functions to deliver uh, the best product to the nation? That's great, sir. Um, you know, looking back, I wanted to reflect a little bit of your time, you know, you know, while you worked on a farm and, and how you had to be innovative and, and work to get things done. Um, and what that meant a lot of times, I also grew up on a farm, so I can relate a lot to this, is that, you know, you, you need to do what you need to do to get it done, but it doesn't have to be perfect. And it seems like within the agency, sometimes we, we struggle with that balance between, you know, perfection and good enough. And, and what advice would you have to leaders to be able to, to figure out when it's good to be good enough um, and, and trust their staff? And, and what, do you, what do you think leadership needs to do to really be able to move forward with that um, to make sure we can be as responsive as an, of an agency as possible? Yeah. Thank, thank you, Aaron, for that question. You know, the, I think the key thing is that you have to lead by example. And so, so leaders set, set the tone. So if the expectation is perfection, we all, uh, even if we get there, it'll change tomorrow. So really setting, setting an expectation for what is acceptable and what's not, and then setting a, a target and a timeline and holding people accountable for meeting that timeline. I've been engaged in a few things lately that have required us to act very quickly, but produce a quality product and to integrate that across multiple functions. And I mean, I'll just give you an example. I found myself where you, you have to adapt your leadership style into being collaborative and getting people to pull their talents together and, and do that. But in some cases, you have to be directive. And you have to say, pencils down, we're, we're done. We're done with this, we've talked about this, and we need to move on to the next target. And, and so I think as a leader, you have to be able to both be collaborative and get people to provide their input, uh, to kind of synergize that input and discuss it and uh, maybe argue about it a little bit. But at some point, you have to make a decision, put the pencil down and move on. And, you know, we've had some kind of live cases since I came up to the headquarters where we've 
we've been under very tight timelines to deliver things, that that's just what we had to do, and I think that's a, a good model to follow. Yeah, that, that's really good. One of the big challenges we see in the agency is that a lot of our leadership um, starts as technical staff. You know, they're focused on the details, um, you know, maybe that, that perfection. As a leader and as folks are becoming supervisors where they, they're maybe a section chief or a branch chief and moving up through the organization, um, what transition do you think they need to make as leaders as they move from more technical to strategic? Uh, yeah, I think... This is what, what I've told a lot of people throughout my career. I'm, I'm a strong proponent of having uh, developmental assignments outside of your comfort zone. So, you know, when, when I was direct, or the program's directing SAD, about 90% of my employees in, in the directorate had done a developmental assignment outside of what they normally did. And I highly encouraged it. It meant that they either came to the headquarters uh, they went and did something at a district. Uh, they did something else in the, in the MSC, the division, uh, to broaden their scope of understanding and perspective. Because I think when you can broaden your scope of understanding and perspective, it helps pull you out of what you're comfortable with. Because like you said, Aaron, when, when you're technically focused and you develop a certain subject matter expertise related to that technical capability, then you get real comfortable with that. And sometimes that's, that's your comfort is knowing what you know about that specific technical skill or knowledge. And uh, I think if you pull away from that and challenge yourself across the board and, uh, and become a better communicator, that then you don't get wedded so much to that technical piece that you can think broader and bring in other perspectives, other functions, help integrate that and then bring it up to a higher level so you can more effectively communicate. Great. Thank you. And so you talked about technical leadership. We also know that we have leaders throughout the organization who are at many different levels. They might not form might not be formally in a leadership position, but they're definitely leading change and leading the organization at their level. Uh, what advice do you have for those folks who might not be in an official leadership position but are are trying to lead change throughout their organization in their in their day to day job? Yeah, I think it's important because you know the the good ideas uh, typically come from the bottoms up. You know what? You know, when we talk about the whole revolutionized concept, it, it really is a grassroots. That's what we want it to be, a grassroots uh, movement that comes up from the bottom, that people feel free. They feel freedom. They're freed to uh, provide suggestions, ideas, and, and to get those incorporated in what we're trying to do to revolutionize the core. And so I, I would just encourage uh, those non-supervisory informal leaders to uh, every opportunity they get to keep pushing and providing that information and feedback to, to their chain of command and to other. Uh, there, there are other influencers in the organization that are not in their formal chain of command, so I think it's important. You know, a lot of districts have uh, what, what either anonymous feedback, uh, drop boxes, uh, the revolutionized team, uh, they can connect with the revolutionized team. I think that's one of the strengths of the revolutionized team is it's, is it's, uh, it's connected directly to the DCW, the director of civil works, 
and Mr. Fisher of the ASA's office. And uh, so there's a direct connection at very high levels on a continuous basis. So I think anything that can be fed into that organization is is a possibility that there it, it may get legs and uh, and it may be evaluated further as we move forward. Yeah, that's good. You know, and talking about trust and our leadership and that connection to the revolutionized civil works effort um, really leads us to our next really focus area here is, is talking about our strategic areas of improvement. Um, you know, about a month ago, we, we had a leadership session uh, where leaders adopted five strategic areas of improvement. Um, where we're, we're focused on uh, improving how we execute as an agency. And just wanted to see, you know, why do you think that revolutionizing civil works and use is important? And then how do these strategic areas tie in and, and what should staff be doing at all levels to, to implement that? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, we all recognize, especially this year, that the world around us is constantly changing. And, and uh, it's adapting and evolving, whether we whether we agree with it, whether we like it or not. And uh, so in, in order for us to be to remain relevant, uh, we have to adapt and revolutionize to really capture the things that we need to do to change ourselves, change our organization in order to uh, better deliver for the nation. So that, that's really what it's about. It's about us being relevant and really being responsive to the nation. And I think, you know, during COVID, we, we've uh, proven that we can be an adaptable organization. I think uh, there, there are areas within our organization that are very adaptable. If you look at how we respond to emergencies uh, across space, I think we're very, very adaptable on that. I think if you get back in our core functional areas, uh, there are some areas there that we, we still need to revolutionize. We need to change. We need to adapt. Uh, and we, and we, you know, and I think it gets tying it back to the strategic areas of improvement. You know, uh, it's been pretty clear that there are five uh, strategic areas of improvement that we have, and I'll define just what what I believe a strategic area of improvement is. It, it, it is an essential strategic area within the civil works uh, function that that we need to focus on in order to enable us to better deliver our programs and projects. And, you know, and, and that, and so, uh, you know, we, we've got feedback from the Secretary on improving partnerships with federal, non-federal agencies and our program and project sponsors, building a trusting organization. I think we all understand that, that all relationships have to be built on trust. So trust is a very, very key component of that. And then adapting to a modern virtual world, you know, I think we've all talked about that for decades. When I was in the Alaska district in 1995, we were talking about a paperless office. And uh, so we were talking about that in 1995. Well, guess what? In 2020, we actually got to implement that concept through electronic routing where we're not pushing paper around for, for approvals anymore. And, and why did we do it? It wasn't because we wanted to do it. It was because COVID forced us to do it. And so, and you have to take advantage of that. I think, you know, that whole thing, my, my, my whole point about adapting to a modern virtual world 
is there is a lot of capabilities out there from artificial intelligence, machine learning that can help us do our jobs a lot more efficiently and effectively. And so I'm looking forward to really adapting uh, under this strategic area of improvement. And then enhancing our programming, uh, project financing, the delivery tools. Uh, the key thing for me uh, related to this is, uh, you know, you, is, is using data to make data-driven uh, decision-making. So if we can get to a point where we have this information freely available to leaders in, in a format that they can readily look at and, and, and pull the key takeaways from that, I think it will be better for us in delivering instead of having to go ask somebody to pull a do a data pull to, to answer a specific question that we have. So I think that, and then the last one is innovative uh, replacement and modernization strategies. I think that the big, the big one that we have ahead of us is we all know that we have a lot of capital investments in infrastructure, and, uh, and we've got to replace it over the next 30 to 50 years. And there are a lot of things that I believe that we could use innovation, R&D, uh, advanced prototyping, a lot of other things to help us get at some of the uh, replacement rehabilitation of our infrastructures. And that, that includes uh, how we finance it, how we budget for it, and how we do our business. Yeah, I think this is an exciting time. You know, looking back at you know some of my career in the core and a lot of times in the past we've gotten things like the campaign plan and other strategic plans and they they haven't been necessarily super inspiring uh, per se, but it seems like, you know, looking at these strategic areas of improvements and really enabling and allowing staff to move forward, that this could be something that inspires us um, and, and helps the staff drive some of these changes from the bottom up. Um, you know, Lauren, what do you, what do you think about some of this? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And, and so, Mr. Lee, what do you think our leaders and, and staff across the course should be doing to really enable this change uh, that we want to see through revolutionized civil works and, and through the agency more broadly? Well, I, I think one is, uh, first of all, it starts at the top. So, I, you know, one of the things when I first came in is the DCW was, was a recognition that um, – that I was going to be the champion for the revolutionized effort for civil works. And, you know, I'm, I know that the chief overall has responsibility for the entire agency for that revolutionized part, but, but for me, it's it's in the civil works director, I am the champion for it. And so lead by example, going back to what I talked about earlier, uh, my expectation is that all our SES leaders are also engaged in the revolutionized effort. And I was pleasantly surprised when I came on board and we started going through our monthly and weekly battle rhythm meetings with uh, the revolutionized effort that this, I didn't have to ask the SESs to be at the meeting. They were at the meeting. So that, that, tells, that tells me that they view the revolutionized effort as valuable. Uh, I also notice that, that uh, Mr. Fisher consistently participates in, in the revolutionized uh, updates and is engaged in it. And, you know, uh, and it's driven a lot of good behavior. So I'll just give an example. The, the uh, Delegation of CAP Authorities, Continuing Authorities Program, you know, when we started this, we had one request that went to the Secretary 
And then from that, Secretary looked at it and started saying, you know, why can't I just, why can't I delegate all of this? And then what, what, what transpired from that was engagement from the Secretary. So every Monday, when I engage the sec, when we engage the Secretary in our updates, he asked, where is my delegation on CAT? So, so it, we're taking that all the way to the top levels of leadership in not only the Corps of Engineers, but in the ASA's office, and they are fully supportive and very complimentary of the work that we're doing in the revolutionized effort. They understand we're not finished, we're just getting started, but it, it is a great effort to see the levels of engagement from our leadership, and I think it goes back to that leading by example. When everybody's doing this and people have, people, other people start uh, saying, well, I've got to be a part of this. And, you know, my, my whole uh, premise is that we want to create irreversible momentum, that we get the organization to a point where uh, people understand the value, recognize the value, and want to be part of, of the effort, and, and they understand that we're not going back to where we were in the past. So that, that's the key parts uh, from my perspective. Yeah, that's that's good, and it, it kind of brings up a question as to to where are we going, and you know where do we see the organization in you know fifteen, twenty, thirty years? But maybe more importantly, you know, from the revolutionized civil works perspective, what does success look like? Yeah, you, you know, I, I think success looks like uh, you know when, when we are doing partner engagements, and and I'll, I'll just give you an example. So we we did this is a kind of a technical policy document that we did, a levy uh, engineer circular, and, and it's, it went out as a very technical, bureaucratic document. We, we sent it out to the public, and, oh, they let us know about it. Uh, you know, they, they lit up the phone lines with the ASA uh, and our headquarters, and they said, you know, we don't understand this. It doesn't make sense. It's confusing. It's got this technical information in it, and so... Uh, you know, we took a different approach. Uh, Phoebe Purcell, our, uh, our uh, leader and supervisor over that function, uh, brought in some, some different people, non-technical, uh, kind of human relations type people in, in that whole aspect of communication, not just from the technical standpoint, but how do we effectively communicate. And so, uh, so they, they completely revamped that EC, um, and now it's very understandable. Uh, we're, we're getting very positive feedback. I did a read of it, and I was just amazed at how different it was from the technical speak that we were started off with, to how well organized and communicative it, it is now to the public. And then we'll use a, an engineer pub to put all that technical things that needs to be communicated internally within the core and leave the policy document the way it is. So I think uh, we do need to think about how we communicate with the public and how that interface, because I think how do we see success? I think that's an example of how we see success. We engage our partners. We listen to their feedback. We're willing to change. We adapt, and then we deliver. Great. Thank you for that example. I think that that really does uh, demonstrate uh, some of the trust that we're trying to build as an organization, really listening to our partners and making changes based on their feedback. And so 
wanted to talk a little bit about trust because we know that it's important both externally to the organization but also internally with our staff. And and as you mentioned earlier, Mr. Lee, building a trusting organization is, is one of the strategic areas of improvement through revolutionized civil work. So for your perspective, what does our organization need to do to build trust and, and what do you find most important um, to build that trust within our organization and with our partners? Yeah, you know, that, that is, it, it sounds like an easy question, but it, it's pretty complex when you tear it apart uh, because I think we all understand the complexity of the civil rights program, our authorities, and the legal requirements that we have to, to meet in order to execute our program. But I, I'm going to try to boil it down to some pretty simple concepts because that, that's the way I think about it. If I can think about it in a simple context, then I think I can, I can actually do something about it. So first is transparency. Uh, you have to be transparent. Um, and you have, and with transparency, but is directly tied to an engagement and listening. So, so you have to engage and you have to be willing to listen and then not just listen, but you have to be able to respond and then you have to verify what they're telling you how and how it relates to what we do. So just because a non sponsor tells us they want to do something differently, we can't just say, yeah, we're going to do that. We have to go back and see what the statutes are, and then, then we have to say, and we have to verify, what are they really trying to get to? So it may require additional engagement and clarification of what they're really seeking to attain in in that uh, change or feedback they're giving. And, and uh, but, but really, I think in order to do that, when you bring it back to our organization, you have to collaborate across functional areas. Because as you know, working in civil works, there's rarely one issue that's in one function within the core. It's in multiple functions. It requires uh, a lot of collaboration across functions. You have to take that information, and then you have to, to think through it, you have to integrate it, and then you have to, to make a decision. And uh, so what gets us in trouble a lot of times is, is we will take a myopic approach of one functional area without considering the impacts to other functions and to the public or to, uh, to other stakeholders and we think we have the perfect solution until it gets published or gets produced in a policy document or whatever, and then there's a reaction to it. We've got to be better about that. We, we need to provide, we need to have our uh, partners engaged early in the process and throughout the process. You know, at the district levels, that includes including them in our, in our uh, project review boards. It includes uh, when, when you're delivering bad news to a partner that you're not doing it in an email or a letter, that you're out uh, actually publicly face-to-face -face engagements with our partners. Um, you know, I had a rule that I never like to deliver bad news to a, to our, to a partner uh, through an email or a letter. I would actually go out and do that engagement. And I think that helps build uh, trust, even though, they may not like the answer. They will respect the fact that you did the engagement, that you were transparent with them, you laid it, laid out the argument, and showed them why 
decisions uh, were that you were having to make, and I think that goes a long way in, in better uh, communicating with our non-federal sponsors and partners. Yeah, that seems to be an important part of trust is having those hard conversations. I mean, it, it seems like it's really easy to be like, hey, here's the good news or, you know, yes, sponsor, we're going to try to get you this money. We can be all optimistic about it. But the reality is sometimes you have those projects that maybe we're not the best agency to deliver the project and we need to be able to communicate that. But, you know, that trust also goes within the organization. Um, it, it seems like organizationally sometimes there's a lack of trust. I've, I've been at worked at the headquarters division um, and with districts, you know, over the years. And, and you hear people say things like, oh, I don't trust the district or I don't trust headquarters. Um, and, and really that, you know, ties into our, our process and, and the bureaucracy of some of this. But uh, really, too, it ties into accountability. And wondering, you know, what your thoughts are on accountability, um, some, I think I read somewhere where it's talked about, like, if everybody's accountable, nobody is. And what, what can the agency do better to, to make sure we have accountable individuals and, and we take that next step as it pertains to trust? Well, from, from a leadership perspective, I think it's lead by example. I mean, that, I keep saying that, but I, I really do believe it. Um, you know, there, on the trust and accountability thing, you know, President Reagan Price said at best, trust but verify. So, so the piece of that goes back to data-driven decision-making. So if we have the data that is in our information systems, it's readily, readily available to all of our people in the, in the core, uh, it makes things a lot easier. And, that, and that's tied to performance metrics. So you're setting expectations through performance metrics, and then you're measuring those through data-driven uh, tools that you have so that you can make appropriate decisions and, more importantly, timely decisions so that you're not having to go out and do a data call in a, or a data pool to pull something in, and then then you get the, the human intervention into that, the culture that you talked about. And, and that culture can be strong. Uh, and I think that... Um, there, there just needs to be a better way of uh, doing that that's, that's transparent, that uh, is clean information that comes up. So when people see it, uh, it, it is a quality level of information. And then the thing about uh, the trust between districts and multiple levels of the organization, you know, I, have, I found that phenomenon throughout my career. According to what level you, you were at, you always thought or there were perceptions that the higher headquarters didn't really understand what you were doing, and they were all 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 messed up. And uh, so, but as you work your way up to the top, and, and now now I'm in a position where I can't say that much more because there's really not too many more people above me. Uh, but but I think the key thing that I've learned from, throughout my career is that the more diversity you have in your experiences and at different levels and different things that you do, uh, the less that's true. I think if you are stovepiped within a certain function, that's the only thing that you know, uh, then your your sphere of influence and understanding is pretty small. But if you have multifunctional experience, I think you start learning things that, well, it's not as simple as that. Uh, this takes a lot more uh, understanding. It's multifunctional, how you pull that together and get people to kind of coalesce on a certain aspect that, that they may not all have 100% agreement, but there's 
enough agreement that you can move forward. So, I, but I think it goes back to what I said earlier about the leadership part. Is uh, is it, it really uh, focuses on uh, the, the part of uh, people having uh, diverse experiences, giving people professional development opportunity, and getting outside their comfort zone working at different levels of the organization so they understand those different levels and what they do at different levels because at the district you're 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 talking about executing that is your primary function is execution when you go to the msc you're talking about some execution but but that's your first level of policy so and and, and so that's different it's more uh they they are helping the districts interpret what they can and can't do, what's what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and then at the headquarters, uh, we we are you know that should be our main focus is policy. Now we did get involved in other things just because of where we're located, our our location in the in nation's capital, our proximity to the White House and Congress and other national stakeholders. So so there are some differences in what we do. But I think in order to continue to build trust, I think we need to we need to really encourage our employees to have multi multi-discipline experience throughout the depth and breadth of the organization. All right. Well, well, those are really good points about diversity and, and experience in particular. And and one thing that and one way I guess that leadership can really help expand the diversity of staff and experience is to use something called dynamic subordination. Um, the concept there is where a leader is able to basically give full authority to a staff member to, to lead specific items. And that's one really good way for leadership across the board to be able to say, um, here's my good employee. I want to give them some experience. So I'm going to trust you and give you authority to carry out this specific task or mission uh, where they don't have to be involved entirely. Because um, it, it's really impossible, like you said, for leaders to know everything about everything. But what you really have to do is be able to trust your staff uh, and enable them to be able to, to move forward with uh, some of these objectives. And, and that's really a value of diversity and diversity of experience, I think. And picking up on diversity, uh, so, you know, an issue that relates to, to that and trust uh, within our organization is, you know, the broader social justice issues that our nation and organization are trying to better address. Um, you know, Mr. Lee, wanted to get your thoughts on that. How has civil unrest affected the core, and what steps are you taking to address these issues within our organization? Well, uh, well thanks for asking that question. You know, I think we, this year has been a very interesting year on, on a number of fronts. Uh, we, we've uh, experienced the impacts of COVID. Uh, COVID has caused us to adapt. Uh, we're, we're all working and having this conversation virtually right now. So what was true uh, back in January, February is, is not necessarily uh, true today. And so with, with, you know, everybody being inside, a lot of people being isolated, I, I think, you know, over time there has been some frustration and anger that's built up, uh, especially in the minority community. And, and you know, we, we talk a lot about trust, and I, I think really it, it gets to that, aspect of trust and you know um, from my perspective I can't sit here and tell you that I fully understand the frustration and life experiences 
of people uh, in people of color, whether they're in uniform or out of uniform, the people that we work for in our office, we work with in our office. Um, you know, I think our minorities uh, that that work in the Corps of Engineers, uh, it, it is a different perspective that they have of how how they're treated in our country, uh, the opportunities that they have, and. Uh, and I'll try to give some examples of kind of how I've seen this in my career. You know, when I showed up to command in the New Orleans district, um, it was a very devastating time uh, after Katrina, the impact of Katrina. A lot of people have lost their lives. Uh, they lost everything they owned. And, you know, one of the things that we were struggling with in the Corps of Engineers at the time was a very high turnover. Of people getting talent and hiring people. So one of the first things I asked my uh, CPAC chief, our civilian in charge of HR, human resources, is what are our percentages uh, of, of what we're hiring internally versus externally? So they came back and told me 60% were coming internally from the organization, 40% were com coming externally, and and that's that's a pretty low number if you think about it. What's coming from outside the organization? So over the three years that I was commander there, we changed that dynamic greatly. Uh, we did a lot of engagement with uh, historically black colleges and universities. Uh, we 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 had over 31 relationships with engineering deans throughout the nation, and and a lot of those were with HBCUs. And uh, so, so what we started doing was a lot of outreach. We told them about our mission in New Orleans, and we were able to get a lot of uh, people of color and, and a very diverse group of uh, employees to come and, and join the Corps of Engineers in New Orleans. And I sat on a, on a panel about this, and they, they were asking questions about how, how do we get more diversity, and it was a pretty simple answer to me. Uh, you know, the answer is you go out and engage. You, you go out and develop relationships with those HBCUs. You get the diversity and you hire it into your organization. So the effects of that was in about three years, we flipped that number. So when I went in 2010, when I was leaving command, we had 60% of our new employees that were coming in uh, to the district were coming from external to the to the district, so they were coming from all kinds of sources. We reached out to Puerto Rico through HENAC and hired uh, a lot of Hispanics. We reached out through the HBCUs to bring in uh, 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 minority employees uh, to work in a lot of different functionaries in the district, and, and that was just the beginning. We did a very significant onboarding process to bring them up to speed. We did a lot of mentoring one, especially with our engineers, because that was a critical uh, shortage that we had. And our engineers developed uh, kind of an onboarding and mentor uh, relationship with each uh, engineer that was brought on board. And, uh, and it was very successful. I mean, uh, there's uh, minorities that were brought on board when, when I was a commander there that are now serving as resident engineers in Florida in the Everglades. So, 
So I think it, you have to provide that opportunity. It's not something that's passive. Uh, you have to be active in the, in the engagement. Uh, you have to make sure that you're providing that opportunity across the spectrum for, uh, for all races and, and creeds and, and backgrounds that come in and work through the core. Because I think we've talked about it already that diversity uh, not just racial diversity, but diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of many other facets make us a better organization. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point that we, we definitely want to encourage that diversity throughout the organization, um, particularly as we try to improve the organization and, and change it for the better. Um, you know, one of the things I wanted to to talk about, you talked about active um changes and, and really active measures to to improve diversity and to um, improve the organization overall. I know that one of the things mentioned uh, recently uh, to deal with uh, some of the civil unrest issues and some of the social justice issues from the Army has been project inclusion. Um, could you talk about what that specifically means to the Corps um, and if there are additional measures that, that leadership throughout the Corps are taking um, to bring some of these social justice issues to the forefront? Sure. Well, I'll start off talking a little bit about it from a higher-level perspective from the Army. You have the Army back in June, uh, the three key leaders from the Army, uh, Sergeant Major of the Army, the Chief Staff of the Army and the Secretary of the Army all jointly signed a message to the Army community about civil unrest. And so that, that was really, I think, important. It was addressed to the soldiers, family members, civilians, and soldiers for life. So the full spectrum of the military community that includes uh, civilians that work in the Army. And it really talked about some of the frustration that sort of exploded during the civil unrest, uh, you know, because of the racial divisions that do still plague America and uh, the frustration, the anger. And, uh, but the key thing about it is that, um, you know, what, what they, they made a statement in their letter that says, our ability to defend this country from all enemies, foreign and domestic, is founded upon a sacred trust with the American people. Racial division erodes that trust. So I think what really at the Army level, the Army has really set, set the standard under this project inclusion that you refer to about how do, we, um, how do we take our Army values and define a culture that we want in the Army that we treat uh, people with dignity and respect regardless of their racial background, their ethnicity, uh, or any other aspect of them. And uh, so... What, what we're really trying to, I think what this project inclusion is trying to do is foster an equitable and inclusive environment so that you can build on, on the diversity that we want and adapt and build cohesive teams that make the Army a better place to work in and, and to work for. So, so uh, you know, every team member needs that opportunity to excel. Uh, and, and so I think in project project inclusion, what they're really looking at is developing some small group breakouts, uh, listening sessions. Um, you know, we, we have a operations order that was put out on the 2nd of September. It kind of lays out a way to do that 
I saw an email this morning that came from Hector that talked about how the Army's doing that. And uh, there's going to be some listening sessions at all levels. And, and really what those listening sessions are aimed at is to better understand, build trust, and really to shape action plans uh, that really affirm a commitment that we're actually going to do something about this. So uh, that, that's the, the key thing they talk about. You know, uh, James, uh, General McConville, one of his, you know, under his key things, people, people first. That's his operationalizing people first is uh, as a command priority for the Army is his focus is deeds, not words. So I think what, what we're really trying to do in, in, this, uh, in this whole effort of project inclusion is to really uh, start at the kind of grassroots level, get an understanding of where that frustration and anger is coming from, and then try to build concrete steps to address the issues that have been identified uh, from, from our workforce and from, from the, the uh, minority communities throughout the U.S., and particularly the ones that work in, in the Corps of Engineers. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Lee. You know, I, you know, I think you know on the, the civil unrest. One thing with this podcast and and moving forward is, is we're going to try to aid in that conversation, and we plan to have a special series just focused on you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, for the agency, and and focusing on leadership and how they can have those conversations with staff. So, really appreciate your insight um, in, into this this very important topic. Um, and, and just generally, I wanted to thank you for joining us today um, in our first Inside the Castle podcast. Uh, we really appreciate you giving us your thoughts on this um, and everything we just discussed today. Um, for all of our listeners out there, uh, if you have questions for us, please go to our website and submit us our questions. We want to hear from you. We want to know the topics that you're interested in. We want to know the people that you're interested in hearing from. Um, so with that, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you again. All right. Thanks, team. Thanks for joining us for this Inside the Castle podcast. To provide your feedback, email us at cw-infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.